Oh, wow. Like, it's like the Security Weekly News, like, you know, like episode 353, in fact, and it's Friday the 12th of January 2024. We got Smart Cars, Microsoft, Layoffs, PyTorch, Mandiant, SEC, Aaron Leyland, and more news on the Security Weekly News. This is a Security Weekly production for security professionals by security professionals. Please visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe to subscribe to all the shows on our network. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. It's the show that keeps you up to date on the latest security news twice a week. Your trusted source for accurate security information and expert analysis. It's time for the Security Weekly News. Hi, folks. I'm Adrian Sanabria, the host of Enterprise Security Weekly. Every week, we interview the most interesting folks we can find talking about the most pressing cybersecurity issues and challenges facing the enterprise today. Myself and my co-hosts have each been in the industry for decades, long enough to see the patterns in the industry and explore where trends are going. In addition to enterprise challenges, we also follow the vendor space, the most interesting security startups emerging, technology and product trends, all the most interesting funding and acquisition announcements. Finally, we love to discuss the latest trends in tech and how they'll impact cybersecurity. If you're wondering how the latest in AI, quantum computing, cloud, and DevOps is going to impact security a few years down the road, you should follow the Enterprise Security Weekly Podcast. All right, welcome to the Security Weekly News. We're back in business for the new year. I swear I saw Alec Baldwin and Kevin Mitnick in that ad, but maybe I'm just seeing things. I'm not sure. Or maybe they had Alec Baldwin and Kevin Mitnick on the show, but who knows? Anyway, uh, this week, Microsoft, among other patches, patched two severe remote code execution risks uh, and urged and when they start urging you, you might want to do it. They urged Windows fleet admins to patch with priority, whatever that means. I mean, I guess it means the obvious thing, which is like, you know, patch. Um, one of the issues was in Kerberos and was described as an authentication feature that could be bypassed to allow impersonation, which is exactly the kind of thing you don't want to hear about your Kerberos setup, right? I mean, that's, that, that's pretty big. I mean, if you don't know, Kerberos is... Uh, Besides being a multi-headed dog that guards the gate of Hades, uh, Kerberos is basically uh, a system that's been around a long time, and it's used to fingerprint machines, and it, it you know provides a hardware kind of identification, and supposedly provides an identity proof that the machine is who it says it is. So this particular flaw would allow spoofing that ticket, I guess, and it lets the machine, uh, it lets, it leads to a machine in the middle attack, and it can even allow the sending of, of messages, which identifies itself as a Kerberos author authentication server, which that is really, really, really bad. And we used to, you know, there used to be this real sexy kind of attack called a machine in the middle, or they used to call it a man in the middle attack. And all those kind of attacks were, you know, always people wanted to talk about them because they sounded so ominous and Hollywood, but they did work, but they really become difficult to do. But hey, if you can and exploit Kerberos, you know. Uh, it did say that you had to have network access before running an attack. Well, you know, okay, how hard is that to get? Uh, the other flaw was a Windows Hyper-V vulnerability, 
which also sounds terrifying, which is a race condition that would expose the operating system to remote code execution attack. But it didn't have a lot of details about what that really involved. It didn't really make it clear if it was the Hyper-V operating system or it was the actual uh, virtual machine operating system or what was, I, I presumed it was exposing Hyper-V somehow, which sounds really, really frightening because if your virtual machines are being compromised at the you know bare metal level, that's pretty frightening stuff. So patch up. Well, CICD stands for Continuous Integration and Continuous Delivery, uh, and it is a term that has come up to describe uh, systems that actually update software across your enterprise, you know, pretty much automatically when patches come out and so forth. And a new class of attacks on CICD could allow attackers to inject malicious code into something like PyTorch. Uh, and Praetorian was reporting on this, and PyTorch was the one they singled out and said that that repository was vulnerable to this kind of an attack. Um, the compromise would be you know, massive supply chain implications. If you're not now, if you're not familiar, and, and of course, there's many other repositories that are subject to this as well. But PyTorch is a framework for building, wait for it, deep learning AI. And since everybody's trying to embed deep learning AI into their app so they can print that on the packaging and go now with AI, um, they basically, you know, could inject something into PyTorch and then the PyTorch framework gets used in everything from automatic corkscrews to F-35 fighter jets. And well, you know, in the industry, we'd call that a supply chain attack and bad. But, you know, so it's pretty scary if if these libraries and we, we've talked about this many, many times, because if you could infect these repositories, which have these very popular libraries, that would mean your malware is going to spread like COVID on the seven train to the Mets game you know, where everybody's drunk and hugging and kissing and jammed in like sardines. But basically what they said was the attacker does a fork pull, which is a way you create a new repository. And that makes you a contributor to the repository that has a self-hosted runner attached. And then you're able to run any GitHub workflow on that runner. So that means they could run workflow that would embed malware. Now, if the runner is set up, it said it has to be set up with a default uh, instructions and they said it is non-ephemeral which uh, what that means is that it's a persistent process so it would keep running and that's pretty scary stuff you know i mean all that violates the whole basis i basic idea of these repositories adnan khan was the person who figured this out and used it against github's own actions slash runner dash images repository and won twenty thousand dollar bug bounty for it uh they went on and identified thousands of GitHub repositories that are prone to attack. And I mean, we all use repositories, GitHubs and such. And, you know, I mean, I say while I'm installing Numpy, and I know you pronounce it NumPy, but I like to call it Numpy because I, I like the sound of that. In fact, my kid was almost named Numpy, but, you know, that that's another story. But, you know, and and I mean, what a coder in a library in a library do in the privacy of their own homes is nobody's business anyway. So keep that to yourself. But anyway, we're going to have to develop better mechanisms to protect these libraries because they are becoming globalized, and everyone uses you know popular ones, and of course that makes them targets. And if they do get in there, you may have libraries in code that is in libraries in code that is in libraries in code, and all of a sudden you don't even know what all's going on. And this is where software bill of materials or S bombs come from, and so forth. So we're going to have to go through at some point 
and either replace all the libraries that we use with clean ones, or we're going to have to scour the ones that we do have to see if they have problems. And we're going to have to find ways to protect these libraries that are being distributed and make sure they're free from problems. I mean, just, you know, you think about how many times some of this stuff gets used and how it gets used and reused and embedded. And all of a sudden it gets really scary, especially AI stuff. I mean, you want to know why Hal was paranoid? Well, let's just say it was when Dr. Chandra downloaded that PyTorch file. Yeah. And I know Dr. Chandra didn't code Hal. I know. I, I, I read what Arthur C. Clarke said. It wasn't Dr. Chandra. Dr. Chandra coded Sal, not Hal. So, yeah, read the book. You'll understand. Mandiant, which is owned by Google, which I think is called Alphabet now, said that the takeover of its X, which I think is used to be called Twitter, uh, account last week was done with a brute force password attack. Okay. Uh, that attack was part of a crypto phishing campaign, which was leaked to a drainer as a service offering called ClinkSync, according to Mandiant. They released a report on all those. So much jargon. Uh, if you don't know what a drainer as a service is, it's a pretty common thing. And there's there's tools like in, uh, Inferno, Angel, Monkey, and there's all kinds of other ones that you can actually pay these companies. And they have great tech support and great customer service, uh, much better than a lot of legitimate companies. Uh, but drainers are basically softwares that are designed to transfer money out of your wallet after you interact with the wallet. So that means you connect, you go to the site, and all of a sudden you have a drainer running and it, it basically siphons all the money out of your crypto account. It's a big business. Mandy had said that $900,000 or more of Solana cryptocurrency has been stolen recently by 35 ClinkSync affiliates that they identified just in that this one report. Mandy had said that, quote, some team transitions and a change in X's 2FA policy resulted in the security lapse. Mandiant did say that no other systems of theirs besides the X account were compromised. Critics said that this was not likely uh, that this was likely due to the X policy of lo locking. A, oh wait, critics said that because X has a policy of locking accounts after a limited number of failed attempts, it kind of called some attention to what Mandiant was claiming that it was a brute force attack. Because unless their passwords were really really lame, the brute force should have failed or been blocked before it got very far. Mandy, it made no comment about any of that, and they made no comment about the multi-factor issue. Now, the multi-factor component of this likely refers to the fact that, uh, that X took SMS2FA options away from non-premium subscribers last March, like they've been doing with all sorts of stuff and saying, hey, you want to use this, you got to pay for it, which, I mean, that's their, their choice. Mandy had said they had made changes to ensure this doesn't happen again. Uh, ClinkSync, if you are unfamiliar, impersonates legitimate crypto sites. And then when you go to those, you know, usually through some kind of phishing attack, you click on the link and you go to what you think is a legitimate crypto site. And then basically you end up having ClinkSync drain your wallet. In the Mandiant case, they were probably trying to get into their X account, which has many, many followers and post links then that, that would, of course, redirect people to fake sites. But this was apparently defeated due to phantom uh, desktop wallet recognizing one of the sites is malicious and then blocking anyone from connecting their wallets to this. So, you know, I'm just going to put all my money in a sack with a dollar sign on it and bury it in that property I own in Vermont. So feel free to start looking for it. 
it, it's not much. I think it's like $75 and a couple of old subway tokens. So, you know, but hey, it's worth a search. In the same light, a U.S. Uh, Securities and Exchange Commission, which is called the SEC, the SEC account was hacked on X as well on Tuesday. And this was blamed not this time on brute forcing, but on a linked phone number coming under the control of the attacker, most likely using SIM swapping. Uh, the incident revealed that the government agency did not have two-factor authentication activated on that X account, so they didn't have to do that. Medici cura te ipsum which means physician heal thyself in Latin. Um, the hijacked account tweeted, um, uh, basically X'd. I don't know. What do you say? Tweeted X'd. What do you say? Elon curate ipsum. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Anywho, the hijacked account tweeted a very professional looking post saying that the SEC had approved Bitcoin ETFs. And this caused the price of Bitcoin to jump to a 19 month high of $47,900 per Bitcoin. And then within a, a little while, dive bomb back to 45,100. Not really a dive bomb, I guess. But when the SEC chair Gensler called out the hijacking of his own page. Um, so this one they said was a SIM swap. And if you don't know, SIM swapping is where I get your cell number somehow. I either somehow fake it, spoof it, or I talk somebody at a store into or bribe them into putting it on a new SIM card and plug it into a phone. And then I basically have access to your stuff, including your multi-factor if it's coming in on an SMS text message because the text would come to the new SIM swap phone, right? It's very icky. So you know, even multi-factor may not help if you're using SMS text messaging because everything's coming to the same device. So you're going to have to use authenticator apps and so forth. But you at least need to enable it to get started. Uh, X has said there is an ongoing trend of account hijacks promoting crypto scams. So if you're using crypto, I would be super crazy careful with your crypto wallets because they will get them and you're not getting that back. Yeah. Threat actors pretending to be cybersecurity researchers are approaching victims of the Royal and Akira ransomware gangs and offering to delete the files that the groups have exfiltrated for a price, of course. It's not clear if the attacker is the same as the original attack. If the attacker is the same as the first attacker who is now acting as the second attacker to pretend to be a third party that will help you with the first attacker's attack, or if the attacker is some other third party attacker pretending to be a second party offering to help you with the first party issue. Yeah. Follow all that? Well, basically, it, it's a fake offer. So you get ransomware. They say they exfiltrated data. Then all of a sudden, you get contacted and they say, hey, we can help. You know, it's like that guy that offers to jumpstart your car in the long-term lot at JFK, and he says he can do it for $50, and, you know, he needs to use that to get his car out of hock, and then he, he takes your $50 and runs off to the bushes. Yeah, that that kind of thing, right. But that's why I just pepper spray everybody that approaches me in par parking lots. But Arctic Wolf Labs said that they have tracked several of these uh, internet cons and that they believe it is a single group carrying out the follow-on extortion, which is what they're calling this now. Ransomware gangs often do retarget the same victims because, you know, if you didn't patch the first time, you probably still have a patch it. So they just come back, you pay them the ransom, they give you the key, then they come back and they ransom you again. You know, you got to fix this stuff. But in one of these cases, a group claiming to be the, quote, ethical side group, ESG, whatever that means, emailed a royal ransomware victim in early October last year and claimed to have obtained access to the data that the gang had stolen from the victim and offered to delete it. Now, another entity called Exanani, Exanonymous, Exanonymous, maybe it's French, 
uh, contact, contacted an Akira victim a month later, and they claimed to have compromised the gang's servers and asked for a payment of five bitcoins to delete the data. It's still not clear if these are the original ransomware gangs just, hey, taking advantage of all possible profit streams, or if it's somebody piggybacking on them and then contacting them. Either way, you got to be really careful and don't be paying people to give you your data back when they're probably not going to anyway. U.S. hospitals will be required to meet basic cybersecurity standards before they can receive federal funding, according to some new rules that the White House is expected to propose in the next few weeks. Hospitals worldwide, of course, are heavy targets for ransomware and other criminal activity, which now includes swatting your patients. So they exfiltrate your patient information and then they swat the patients if you don't pay up. They also use many other nasty approaches, including threatening the patients, sending them notices and all kinds of things. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which is part of the U.S. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, called HHS, not DHS, but HHS, is apparently drawing up the rules, which will take effect before the end of the year. An unnamed official said that the proposed rule will focus on, quote, those key cybersecurity practices that we really do believe bring a meaningful impact, hopefully better than the ones the SEC is using. Uh, there is a link in this article to a concept paper that was published in December that outlines some of the HHS Department cybersecurity strategy stuff. So you can check that out if you're a hospital and maybe subject to that. Uh, last year, according to the report, last year, at least 46 U.S. hospital corporations with a total of 141 facilities uh, between them were hit by ransomware attacks. And at least 32 of these had protected health information stolen. So you're a big target, healthcare. Be careful. Um, now, I guess all of us have been laid off or fired at some point, <laughs> maybe more fired than laid off. It's hard to tell. I'm not sure when they said, don't ever come back here again. You know, I, I mean, it wasn't, I'm not sure it might've just been, you know, we agree to disagree. We might've been laid off. I'm not sure, but it looks like into 2024 so far that there's still going to be more cost cutting efforts underway with Google and Amazon already announcing layoffs, uh, recently. All of this, of course, is being blamed on overhiring back during the pandemic, changes in use patterns and so forth. And it seems that we're starting to see things sort of subtly shift back toward pre-pandemic employment levels. Uh, you know, so there's going to be some reshuffling. And I say reshuffling because it always seems that, you know, things just sort of shift from this side to that side and back again. But I mean, the market seems pretty strong for jobs, but there are definitely people looking for work because some of them contacted me and, and they've not found what they're looking for. And, you know, and it's certainly saying there's jobs available is not the same thing as going from being a Python developer to cleaning out the grease trap down at max all you can eat. You know, I mean, you know, it's a job. And I guess if I needed it, I would go clean out the grease traps, but it's not quite the same thing at the same pay. I did include this story because it has a whole stack of links to tips and such, which can be helpful if you think you may get laid off or you're going to get laid off. I thought the tips were useful. It might even be a good review, but you know, I, I don't think I would distribute this because if you send this out to all the employees, <laughs> You know how that works. You know, somebody sends out an article about what to do when you've been laid off. And then all of a sudden, yeah, hijinks ensue. Well, in sense around sound and a two inch wall, I was waiting for the communist call. I didn't ask for sunshine and I got World War Three. I'm looking over the wall and Aaron Leyland is looking back at me. Hi, Aaron. <laughs> Hi, Doug. Hi, exciting. <laughs> I'm just currently looking on my ring doorbell. <laughs> my delivery driver's just turning up just as you were introducing <laughs> me, but he's done the most silent drop-off in the world, so I'm super happy that uh, <laughs> it doesn't get in the way of our professionalism. 
Now, now you just got a crate marked "live animals" sitting on the front step outside yeah, for a while. Uh, yeah, I hope he. I, it's like I left the door a tiny bit ajar. I hope my dog cousin Rod is terrorizing the neighborhood. When I used all to, good though. All good. Yeah, you're up. Okay, let's go. <laughs> okay, thanks and happy New Year to all our listeners, especially the one who. Um, Posted that um, Doug sounds a bit grumpy when um, we're doing the professional commentary, but uh, Doug being so smart just must get so bored. Anyway, right. Today's article is from Hack Read and um, it's Python in Threat Intelligence Analyzing and Mitigating Cyber Threat. <laughs> oh, God. We all know someone who loves Python. <laughs> uh, okay. As cyber threats continue to evolve at a ridiculous rate, the need for robust and proactive defense mechanisms has never been greater. So, with the guidance of today's article, I want to discuss how Python, with its versatility and power, is being utilized as a critical tool in the fight against malicious actors. Um, at the heart of today's thoughts lies threat intelligence. It's not just about collecting data, it's about interpreting and applying information to anticipate the combat potential cyber threats. That sounds so exciting. Um, this includes indicators of compromise, IOCs, indicators of attack, IOAs, adversary tactics, techniques, and procedures, TTPs, all sounding very military today, and of the ever-changing threat landscape. So by effectively wielding threat intelligence, we can proactively resist attacks before they inflict harm. At least that's the plan, right? So why Python and what's all the fuss about? Python's strength lies in its accessibility, its clear and concise syntax. This allows analysts to develop and understand code with ease, unless when you're learning it. <laughs> but to be honest, it is one of the easier ones. I like it. It's good. It's good. So this fosters rapid analysis and minimizes errors. Furthermore, Python boasts a vast, never-expanding library ecosystem, offering powerful tools for tasks ranging from web scraping and data extraction to compilex, <laughs> complex machine learning and data visualization. This makes Python a massively versatile weapon in the arsenal of threat hunters. Obviously, be careful of your libraries. <laughs> Sometimes there's other people's code in there. It's not too good. So today's article looks at six ways that Python is used by threat hunters. Firstly, data acquisition. Python automates the cumbersome task of data collection, searching open source intelligence, dark web forums. Yes, as long as you've got the correct credentials there, but anyway, and social media platforms for valuable insights. Yes, Cambridge Analytics. <laughs> I know we all love automation, as it gives us time to do the fun stuff, right? So um, <laughs> I'm pro-automation. Um, data analysis equipped with libraries like Pandas and NumPy. <laughs> I can't even say that. Python tackles very large amounts of data, extracting patterns and identifying anomalies that might signal hidden threats. Alan Turin would be so proud. Machine learning integration. Python seamlessly integrates with the machine learning algorithms. Doug will be so happy. Empowering us to train AI models to detect subtle patterns associated with cyber attacks. 
With each iteration, these models become increasingly adept at distinguishing genuine threats from harmless activity. At least that's the plan. And <laughs> who doesn't love a bit of ML, especially the salespeople? Bless them. Security integration. There are Python scripts which bridge the gap between threat intelligence feeds and your existing security infrastructure, ensuring real-time updates and a holistic understanding of the threat landscape. As someone told me to say this, it's like having a real-time threat radar constantly scanning the horizon. But I think it's more of an insane robot doing my donkey work. <laughs> Sorry, donkeys. Um, threat indicator analysis. From suspicious ITP addresses to nefarious domain names, Python can help us connect the dots. It can analyze IOCs and IOAs, as I stated earlier, revealing the broader context and potential implications behind seemingly isolated indicators. Visualization, translating complex data. Do you know this show is actually visualized? When I first started watching this show many years ago, <laughs> I, I didn't even realize for some reason that um, you can actually watch it on video. Probably a good thing. Anyway, Python allows us to craft compelling visualizations that communicate threat intelligence effectively even to non-technical audiences, good visuals definitely make me happy. And if you need help, I'd see a friendly scientist. They're great at this stuff. So looking further into the subject, to illustrate the practical application of these concepts, consider the constant threat of phishing being in my life. It is possible to have Python script collecting data from domain registries, blacklists, who is records. It can build a comprehensive list of potential phishing domains then analyze them for characteristics like recent registration, suspicious registrars, and keywords like login, bank, all that good stuff. A machine learning model trained on past phishing campaigns then assesses the risk associated with each domain. Um, finally, then the script can seamlessly integrate this information into your security system. Good luck. Triggering alerts and blocking access to identify threats. So with beautiful visualizations, of course, you can present a clear picture of fishing landscape to the decision makers and maybe squeeze a few dollars from their deathly gripped hands. <laughs> okay, so there is, however, more than just analysis. There is also pro proactive defense with Python. This is all the cool stuff. Of course, we have further automation, automated response on the detection of malicious IP address. With Python, you can automate an immediate response, updating your firewall to block communication with a threat. Um, it's not actually that hard to set this up <laughs> and neutralize the incoming attacks, but beware, you just don't block the business doing business stuff. Threat hunting, Python scripts can transform into tireless sentinels. <laughs> it's all about the robots. Um, continuously monitoring your network for suspicious activity and anomalies. They send real-time alerts acting as early warning systems to prevent potential compromise. Incident response automation. When faced with a security incident, Python scripts can streamline response procedures, automating tasks like data collection, containment, and even eradication. This saves valuable time and minimizes the impact of attack. I guess what I'm saying is <laughs> lots of the function that you're paying fast amounts for Vast amounts of money to the vendors. You can actually do it yourself through a bit of coding <laughs> and probably even better some of the open source projects, which I'll mention right at the end. So, in conclusion, 
Python is not just programming language. It's a programming language, which is a powerful tool that empowers cybersecurity professionals just like us to defend uh, uh, against ever-involving threats by leveraging its versatility, automation capabilities, and data analysis prowess. We can gain a crucial edge into the ongoing battle against cybercrime, which makes me wonder, where is Cyber Robocop? Why somebody not made that movie or cartoon? Why is that not a thing? Anyhow, I, I encourage you to go forth and look more into Python. On a serious note, years back, I was telling people to look into the cloud so they could get ahead of their peers. Then it was Python, and Python still very much stands. I would definitely have my kids learning this as a priority. And then, of course, my recent campaign is to have you learn product, products like Bard, ChatGPT, Copilot, and all that cool stuff. So then they can do your donkey work, and you can do the cool parts, okay? Okay, for your amusement, I put in the show notes some interesting projects on GitHub, which are worth looking into, like Zeke and Moloch and Watcher in the Hive and all them good ones, some written by friends of the show even. But anyway, back to Doug in the studio. Peace out. Yay. Thank you, Aaron. I, I want to name this episode Sorry Donkey. I, I, I really enjoyed it when you uh, said uh, that. So Sorry Donkey. That that's a donkey. great Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody, somebody commented they could hear me like breathing and like all kinds of stuff when the when you were talking. We don't want so. to hear you breathing, Doug. That's the whole <sighs> point. <sighs> yeah. <sighs> oh, Aaron. Stop. <sighs> Thanks, Aaron. And finally, CES Vegas, which is a big tech show that has been going on the last week, I think. And there's been a lot of hoopla around internet connected smart cars. But according to Kaspersky, uh, they did a survey back in November of 2000, I don't know, I guess American drivers, 72% of the drivers are uncomfortable with automakers sharing their data with advertisers. Only 72%? I'm like, was who were these other 28%? Were they the people that were going like, yeah, I think it's great. You know, like, like, I'm really glad they're like selling all my info. I mean, there's, I guess there's always people like, I don't care. But, I mean, they didn't like it. Uh, they are also selling this data, of course, to insurance companies, subscription services, and, well, you know, anyone who will pay for it. Uh, so the Chinese army probably knows where you went last night. But 37% uh, of those people said they were very uncomfortable with this, and 34% said they were somewhat uncomfortable, which is a fine line. But only 28% said they had any idea what was being collected because it's really hard to tell. I mean, I don't know what my car is collecting and reporting to the Chinese Red Army. It could be just about anything. Uh, Mozilla Foundation had an investigation last year where they looked at the privacy policies and practices of 25 automakers, and they gave every single one of them a failing grade for privacy. Uh, Moz put out a privacy not included report in September, which warned that car manufacturers are collecting and selling things, anything and everything like location history, driving habits, in-car browser history. And they went on to say the cars can track just about anything you're doing in there. Of course, we saw a case where somebody was monitoring uh, Tesla cameras at Tesla and, you know, looking for people that were, that, you know, canoodling that. in their cars and things like that. I mean, I wish it was an option to turn this off i i actually have looked at my car to see if there's options to say please don't report please don't do this please don't do but unfortunately in the u.s we don't have any laws protecting that kind of thing uh like europe does so i guess you know i guess i could buy back my old mg if anybody wants to buy me a, an old mg and give it to me that would be cool it didn't have any data collection and even if it had had data collection it probably wouldn't have worked anyway lucas electronics for the win 
All right. Thanks, Aaron. That's the news. We'll see you next week on the Security Weekly News.